Well, it's great to be here and uh, see a lot of old friends, and the emphasis is on old. <laughs> All of us, right? You know. <laughs> so it's great to be here. If I pause in the middle of speaking, it's because I'm so used to having to wait for a translator. So uh, I've become sort of dyslexic on that, and I've become really spoiled in that when you're working with a translator, you get to say something and then stop and think, how'd that go? Uh, What am I going to say next while he's translating for you? And so that um, takes a while to get used to, but now I'm like, wow, I'm speaking in English. I just got to keep going and keep talking. So uh, Pastor Matthew gave you a little bit of background for me, um, the Reformation is my specialty, was my, the focus of my doctoral studies, and my dissertation was actually in the early English Reformation. So you're going to hear about a lot about, this morning, a guy by the name of John Frith. Anybody ever heard of him? Well, I have a funny story about that. You were asking me about Claire Davis. Okay. Um, For anybody who's ever been through a doctoral program, there's this one terrifying event that you have to prepare for, and it's called your oral defense. All right? And, And it follows a massive set of written exams, two days of eight hour essay exams. You know, tell me everything you know about the about the German Reformation. That was one of the questions. You know, eight pages, ten pages later, you know, your hand's ready to fall off. And then they go over that, and they pick it apart, and they decide where you're weak and where they're going to come after you orally. So anyway, I was waiting to go into the, the room, the examination room. And uh, those of you who don't know who Claire Davis was, he was a longtime church history guru at Westminster Theological Seminary up in Philadelphia. And he, he talks to me, and he says, well, who did you do your dissertation on? And I said, John Frith. And he went, who's that? And I went, yes! Because <laughs> I knew I knew a lot more about him than he did. <laughs> so in any event, um, it's great to be here at Brandywine. I've been here many, many times. I've been in this room many, many times, because our organization, SALT Leadership, often holds our banquets here in this facility. Our board often meets here, uh, and uh, so many of our people are involved here at Brandywine, and so it's great to be here. Now, my topic this morning is the English Reformation. Oops, wrong one. Sorry. Oh, this is sort of like deja vu. Right? You, she said, why don't you talk about the five points of Calvinism? And I'm like, well, it, has not, it doesn't have that much to do with the English Reformation. And then this is the slide previous to my discussion on English Reformation. And so anyway, there they are, the five points of Calvinism. Um, I'll just mention something that we were talking about before. Um, Calvin is often characterized by the five points, Right? It's like, well, what did Calvin talk about? Well, the five points, right? Well, that was only a small portion of Calvin's theology. And if you ever pick up a copy, and I would recommend this, of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was Calvin's life's work, his magnum opus for his whole life. He he wrote it when he was a young man in his 20s. Uh, the first edition, you can actually get a copy of the first edition in English. I had one. And, you know, it's maybe 250 pages long. The final edition of the Institutes is like 1,700 pages long, two volumes, you know. So he continued to work on it and expand it. But the opening chapter of the Institutes is about knowing God and how you can know God and And so it's not a textbook on Calvinistic predestination and all of that. It's really about knowing God and having a personal relationship with him and how you can do that and and so forth. So that's sort of the the kernel of his thought there. 
So um, the actual five points of Calvin come out of a later argument and difficulty uh, centered around Jacob Arminius, from which you get Arminianism. We're all, I'm sure, that, aware of that term. But that all took place in Holland long after Calvin's death, and the Synod of Dort came up with these five canons or points of Dort, and that's kind of where the, the five points of Calvinism really generate from. So there's no extra charge for that information. I know it's sneaking in on last week's discussion on Calvin, but uh, I really wasn't planning on doing that. So, okay, see, this is the slide I meant to go to. But, and that's the English Reformation. Now, when we talk about the English Reformation, there's a lot of debate over what the English Reformation was all about. Okay, so was it political? Was it religious? You say, well, I thought it was religious. Well, there's a lot of scholars on either side of that. Okay, and it sort of is heavily influenced by your own religious opinions and perspectives. So people who are kind of either anti-religious or Roman Catholic in particular are going to say that the English people did not want a Reformation, okay, for the most part, and the Reformation came from above. All right, so we, we have that expression, came from above. In other words, it was legislated by the powers that be, and people kind of went along with it because they had to. If you didn't, you were generally killed. So anybody who was anybody in Tudor England died by execution, just about. Protestant, Catholic, especially wives of Henry VIII. Okay, they were very susceptible to execution. Okay, so um, the other viewpoint is that the Reformation came from below, that it was uh, at its core a grassroots theological movement of conviction, the importation of Luther's ideas, Luther's gospel, uh, you know, the things we, I'm sure, again, I haven't had a chance to listen to all the classes that come on. But I'm sure that when you studied the, the roots of the Reformation, you saw that it was about a theological idea. It was about a new way to understand the gospel, right? It's a gospel that's not by works. It's not about purgatory and trying to buy your way out of purgatory. It's about trusting in Christ. That's the core of the message of justification by faith alone, right? You've learned about this, correct? See some nodding heads. Good. Good. So um, there was a grassroots movement. There were individuals who caught the flame of that Reformation message. One of those key things was translating the Bible into the language of the people so they could understand it and read it for themselves. Right? So we're going to talk about a lot of that. So um, which is right here? Well, we're going to look at both influences on the English Reformation. Let me just give you a little bit of background here. You know, the Reformation began in Germany. Uh, I believe you had some lectures on Ulrich Zwingli and the Anabaptist movement, right? Okay, so that's sort of a parallel movement that was going on much at the same time. You know, Germany's up here. Uh, Switzerland's down here, and much of the radical movement, the Anabaptist movement, began in Switzerland, although there were radicals in Germany as well. I don't know, did they talk about the Peasants' Revolt of 1525 at all? Or Okay, nobody went, not got into that. But, you know, that radical element of the Reformation was there in Luther's day, but it really kind of took off in Switzerland, okay, so there's that group. Now, the political situation in Germany was a patchwork quilt of all kinds of different government that was only held together in what was known as the old Holy Roman Empire, of which Charles V 
was the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was a Spani- he was a Spaniard, and he was Catholic to the core. Okay. Now, I'm not sure how much you talked about. He was the guy that Luther stood in front of and said, here I stand, you know, and uh, unless I'm convinced by clear reason or scripture alone, right? So you remember that moment at the Diet of Worms back in 1521, right? So Germany um, had a bunch of individual rulers like Prince Frederick, who was Luther's prince and who protected Luther, and other German nobility that ruled different parts of Germany. Okay, And because they banded together and, and supported Luther, it helped the Reformation to survive there. But in France, which I'm sure you probably talked about yes, I mean, last time, you know, France was a monarchy. So there was a king over a large thing. So England had the same situation. England was a monarchy where the king and who ruled set the tone for religion in the whole country. See, that's the difference. That's one of the big differences. Now, Switzerland was basically a confederation of, well, they were size of our counties. They called them cantons in Switzerland, but... They were a, a kind of a, also a patchwork quilt, and different ones went with the Reformation. Some went, you know. So in, in Geneva, of course, uh, it became Reformed, and that's where Calvin was involved. Zwingli was involved in Zurich, and that's where he worked. So the English Reformation is largely formed by the king and what he does. Now, there was a tremendous reform movement in France but the French Reformed Party never was able to take over the monarchy. One minor exception in Henry IV, but Henry, uh, there's an old expression, all of Paris for a mass. And he was a Protestant, but he was the next in line for the throne. But in order to take the throne, he had to convert to Roman Catholicism, which he did, sort of. Anyway, that's another whole story. Okay, so um, political or religious. So we're going to take a look, first of all, at the political side. Now, um, this is not the normal portrait you see of Henry VIII, right? Normally you see him when he's about 100 pounds heavier, severe gout in his leg, and has a really mean look in his eye, like, I'm going to cut your head off. So, this is the young Henry. He was quite the dashing character, uh, was a sportsman, loved jousting and hunting and all kinds of stuff. So, he was uh, very much the jock of his day. And uh, this was his young Spanish princess bride. Now, she was um, related to the Holy Roman Emperor. Actually, uh, she was his aunt. Okay? So, I mean, this was a very advantageous match. But there was a problem here. Henry was not the heir to the English throne originally. He had an older brother. His older brother was named Arthur. Okay? And when Arthur was 15, 16 years old, they arranged for him to marry this Spanish princess. Now, again, this was a political marriage. This was going to align England and Spain. and you know. Plus, there was a lot of money involved. She was very rich, and she came with a huge dowry. Now, <clears throat> we don't have dowries anymore. Dowries are sort of like a woman's insurance policy because the dowry belongs to her as long as the marriage stays. You know what I'm saying? So if the husband wants access to those funds, he's got to keep married to her. Can't ditch her, can't do anything like that. So um, unfortunately, Arthur died right after they got married. And there's oh, it was a, this gets a little bit seated here. Sorry, but you know, this is sort of 16th century soap opera. 
Okay. There was a lot of debate as to whether or not the marriage was actually consummated. Queen Catherine was to swear to her dying day that it never was. Okay? They'll say, well, why does it matter? Well, normally you're not allowed to marry your brother's widow. Right? You know, there's a Deuteronomy 20 says, don't uncover the nakedness of your brother, you know, and all of that. And so, but there was a lot of money involved and a big political alliance. So Henry VIII's father, Henry VII, who was the king of England at that point in time, he petitioned the Pope for a special dispensation. In other words, pay me some money and I'll let you do what you want to do. Same sort of thing that happened with the sale of indulgences, if you remember, if you guys went over that. So, Henry was allowed to be given his dead brother's widow as his wife. The dowry stayed. (laughs) You know, all that money stayed in the family. And the alliance stayed with Spain. All right? So, all of this took place, you know, and Henry and, and uh, <clears throat> Catherine uh, were pretty happy. You know, had a good marriage. Henry was known to be kind of a philanderer, but that was kind of normal for kings back in those days. But the problem was they only had one child that survived. She kept having stillborns and kids that died in infancy and so forth, and that was Princess Mary the only child they had that survived. So as time went on, um, let me give you a little background on the Tudor monarchy. What time do we drop dead here? 10 o'clock? Okay. All right. I better hurry. I'm used to having three or four hours to talk about this stuff. So, um, People don't realize, but before Henry VII there was a massive English civil war over the throne. It's called the War of the Roses. As some of you know English history. And there was a lot of insecurity over the Tudor dynasty. Okay. And so there was a tremendous amount of concern of making, you know, nobody wanted to see there be a big battle over who's going to be the next regent of uh, that. So that kind of gives you some background there. Um, there never really had been a successful queen in English history. So the necessity of a male heir became very important. Um, now, we look back through history and we realize there's, there were several very successful English queens. But the first of those is Elizabeth, who's actually one of Henry's daughters. So um, prior to that, it was a mess. So there was a tremendous amount of insecurity about that. Um, I'll talk about Henry's great matter in a moment here. Um, and I'll talk about that in a matter uh, as well. So this is the more normal portrait you see of Henry. And the eyes in this portrait just still send shivers up and down my throne. My, my throne. That's interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, this is like, don't cross me or you're dead. So what was the king's great matter? Well, the king's great matter is there's no male heir to the throne. Okay. What are we going to do? So Henry began to believe that there was something wrong between him and God. Maybe I shouldn't have married this woman who was my brother's wife. Now, there's a lot of debate over this as well. I got to admit, you know, some people say this wasn't about his conscience before God. He just fell in love with Anne Boleyn and wanted her and she wouldn't sleep with him unless she was married. There's probably some truth to that. But Henry could have had a lot of different women. So I, I think there's probably some truth to this. But like most of us, sometimes our motives are mixed as to why we do things, right? You know, sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that. So, um, 
So he petitioned the Pope for a divorce. Right? No problem. Just give him enough money. There was a problem. Okay? Remember, Catherine was directly related to the Holy Roman Emperor. Very powerful. One of the most powerful people in the world at that point in time. And Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, had just had military action and actually put the Pope in prison. So guess what the Pope said? No. You know, he's not going to grant Henry the divorce. So he was rejected and through a series of events that culminated in the 1534 Act of Supremacy. Basically, Henry had himself declared the head of the Church of England and said, Pax and, Pope. That means go, you forget it. Right? Pax and, okay, anyway. All right, so um, now you have Henry starting his own church. So you have the genesis of the Church of England, or the English Church. And to this day, the monarchy is considered the defenders of the faith, the heads of the Church of England. Okay. And so this really, you have to understand this background to understand, uh, because we have a progression of classes here. We're going to talk about English Reformation here. Where did that come from? Then next week, we're going to talk about a movement called English Puritanism. Okay? But it's the English Puritans that then give rise to, I think, Pastor Bo, you're doing Puritanism in America, right? Oh, I'm sorry. You're doing the wrap-up. Forgive me. Forgive me. Um, Pastor Matthew is going to talk about the, the sort of religious foundation of the American vision, you know, the city set on a hill. And that is a Puritan vision, and it was Puritans who came over and settled uh, in their various groups in Massachusetts Bay Colony and so forth, and became really the, the, in some ways, the genesis of the American religious idea, of which we are inheritors to one degree or another. So we're talking about our own roots here as evangelical Christians in the United States of America. Where do we come from? Well, obviously, we're inheritors of the Reformation and Luther and his ideas. But more than anything else, we're also heavily influenced by the English Reformation and then also by the English Puritan movement. So all of those are direct contributors to kind of where we as evangelicals see our roots. Now, there's a lot of side paths and so forth. We could have a whole series of classes on all the development of Protestant denominations and different groups and so forth. So, but at least this is kind of our background. So Henry says, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. You know, I'm not playing with you, Mr. Pope, anymore. And so this set off a huge battle for what is the Church of England going to look like? Now, Henry was a Catholic. He wrote a book against Martin Luther, probably helped quite a bit from a guy named John Fisher, but that's another issue. So, um, anyway, that's what kind of happened. Now, this was the object of Henry's desire. I should have had the picture come up first. There she is, Anne Boleyn. Uh, it's amazing how there still is interest in all of this. There was a movie came out not long ago, The Other Boleyn Girl, and then there was, the, was one of the premier things had the Tudors, the whole mini-series on, on this whole business. And so it was pretty sordid. So Henry uh, liked her. One of the dynamics, though, was that she was pretty much a Protestant. Okay? And during the brief marriage, three years, it was only how long it lasts. In fact, there was a movie called Anne of a Thousand Days. Uh, came out several years ago that was about her life and her very short reign as queen. Um, she was beheaded on trumped-up charges in 1536 of uh, adultery. Uh, this really was no proof of it. And she had one child, 
and she also could not give Henry a male baby that survived. So that's probably the biggest reason why she was ditched. And uh, that, of course, was Elizabeth. So Elizabeth was born uh, to a Protestant mother and was subsequently raised as a Protestant, as opposed to Mary, who was born from a very devout Catholic mother and raised Catholic. Okay. So um, Henry's third wife, I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm sorry to disappoint you, all six of Henry's wives, because the last few don't have a huge role in the Reformation. But uh, Jane Seymour, this is not Jane Seymour of Medicine Woman or whatever, uh, what was that show? Uh, Quinn something or other, yeah, Medicine Woman. Uh, So Henry liked them young. So I think she was like 18 when the old man married her. And uh, she finally gave Henry a boy. But she died 12 days later. So she didn't make it. You know, childbearing was very dangerous, obviously, at this time. And a lot of women did perish in the process. So um, her son became Edward VI. He also was raised as a Protestant, There he is. Now, anybody ever read The Prince and the Pauper or seen the Mickey Mouse cartoon? There's a good Mickey Mouse cartoon. There's a good movie starring Errol Flynn called The Prince and the Pauper. Um, That is a Mark Twain story that's a, a historical fiction because the boy king whose father dies and he becomes king. This is Edward VI. Okay, so, you know, the identical poor kid that Looks dark, you know, just like the king. So that all is false, but the historical setting is that of Edward, who uh, becomes king at the age of nine and died before he became 16 years old, unfortunately. But he was very sincerely Protestant. The people around him, he never really ruled because he never came into his majority. So, uh, But the governing councils that ruled in his stead obviously were were very Protestant. And a lot of Protestant reforms were kicked into gear um, after Henry VIII died. So now the whole nation is moving more radically towards Protestant structure, church polity, in many different ways. But then he dies at 15 years old. So... Um, England is really forced into a situation that they didn't want to be in. So on his deathbed, when they knew he was, you know, the disease he had was fatal, he tried to put his relative, Lady Jane Grey, as the person who would succeed to the throne. She was a Protestant. Uh, it didn't work. And uh, we'll talk about this more next week because we'll talk about the setting for Elizabeth and how Elizabeth came to power and what that led to and how that led to the Puritan movement and so forth. But in any event, um, Edward died and his half-sister Mary eventually became queen. So his effort to put a Protestant queen on the throne did not work. And in the end, it was Henry's eldest daughter, And she became known as the drink, Bloody Mary. (laughs) Which I've never had one. I I, you know, I just want everybody to understand, you know, it's like like he must do a lot of drinking, Mabel, you know, it's like talking about the drinks. Okay. So now uh, I spent maybe a little bit too much time on that political stuff, because, like I said, a lot of people just say, hey, the only reason the English you know, accepted the Reformation is because it was forced on them from above. You know, Once Henry died, the Protestants forced it down everybody's throat. Uh, Mary tried to do the opposite, and then Elizabeth kind of was a little more moderate, but still, she was Protestant. 
Okay. But there's another whole side to this, and this is really about the struggle for the Bible in a lot of ways. Okay. And the person that really is perhaps best identified with this movement is a man by the name of William Tyndale. Now, we've all heard of Tyndale. You know, there's Tyndale publishers, and there's a couple schools named after Tyndale. And rightfully so, because he was, um, his passion, really, he was a, a country priest, and he, he developed this passion to, to translate the Bible. And he was an incredibly gifted linguist. So um, most of the um, current scholarship Best scholarship on Tyndale. You know, there used to be a statement that said, you know, no Shakespeare, no English. Now it's no Tyndale, no English. Because 70 to 80% of the language of the King James Bible is Tyndale's language. Okay. From his work that was largely unappreciated because he was an outlaw. He was on the run. I'll have more to say about that. But so... um, it's the English Bible that formed the English, the modern English language that we speak today. Um, as a part of my research and, and my studies, I had to go back and read a lot of documents out of the early 16th century in English, and it's hard reading, you know. But any one of us can pick up a King James Bible. I might have a little trouble with these and thous and thou wittest and you know, and all of that kind of language, but we would be able to easily read it and understand it. So when you go back and you see the stuff before spellings got, um, spellings got standardized and, and the way expressions took place and so forth. So it really is a dramatic difference. So he very much uh, was involved in translating the New Testament, got through a good portion of the Old Testament as well. Now, um, Another famous proto-reformer, and it would have been fun if we had some more time, we could have talked about the proto-reformers, the pre-Reformation reformers like John Wycliffe or Haas, John Haas, or maybe the Waldensians or some other group that were individuals before Luther who were uh, crying out for reforming the abuses of the Catholic Church and so forth. And, of course, uh, one of the most famous of those was another Englishman, John Wycliffe. And, of course, he's well-known because he's got a whole Bible translation mission named after him, Wycliffe Bible Translators, but which is really a little bit of an oxymoron, in my opinion, because they should have called themselves the Tyndale Translators because Wycliffe's translation wasn't very good. It was... It was from Latin into English. So it was a translation of a translation. And anybody who knows anything is that every time you translate from one language to another, you know, there's always some things that are very difficult to bring across. So if you do that twice, then it gets even more difficult and so forth. So, and it wasn't even really a very good Latin text to begin with. But... It was the vision of providing the Bible in a language that people can understand. Now, you got no under, you know, first of all, in Wycliffe's day, in Tyndale's day, the vast majority of people didn't know how to read. The super vast majority of people didn't know any Latin. And so all the church services, all the Bibles, guess what? They're all in Latin. And most of the clergy didn't even know Latin. They were almost as uneducated as the lay people. So one of the visions of the Reformers was education. Teach everybody, even women, heaven forbid, right? You know, That was one of their visions, teach women how to read. So that really launched a whole new gender revolution in a lot of ways. Okay. So, um, teach us how to read so we can read the Bible for ourselves. Give us a translation so I don't have to learn another language in order to read the Bible. So, we take what we have today for granted, I think. They didn't have that. In fact, if you've ever seen, uh, there's a halfway decent movie made about William Tyndall. It's called God's Outlaw. 
And uh, one of the first scenes in the movie is uh, an inquisition, really, against a family who had portions of Wycliffe's Bible, and they were arrested and executed for that. So people actually died in order to have parts of the English Bible. So this is a big (coughs) emphasis for Tyndale. Um, Of course, he also wanted, he was also a follower of Luther and Luther's teachings, so was a big believer in getting the gospel into the language so people can understand it and believe in it. I hate time. Okay. I want to explain something here. You know, Luther's gospel was about faith, right? It was about belief. But it was a different kind of faith than what the Catholic Church taught about. The Catholic Church was content to have you say, I believe in the Catholic Church. I believe whatever the Catholic Church teaches. You don't have to understand it, right? So you say, the Catholic Church teaches the Trinity. You know, omni, omni, V-O-R. So, um, and... So you just say, I believe that. I don't understand it. I don't understand any of this stuff. You don't have to. Because salvation came through the sacraments. Being baptized, taking the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of penance. I'm not sure how much you went over that. Okay. So that was, that was what it was all about. So Luther was coming along and saying, no, you, you have to believe but believe is not just a historical faith. It's not just saying, you know, believe, today we wouldn't say, you know, if I said, well, do you believe in, that there's this guy named Jesus Christ? Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Do you believe he died on the cross? Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Do you believe he's, you know, he's the son of God? Yeah, yeah. See, that's just historical faith. Okay. That's not what Luther said was saving faith. Saving faith was a trust in Christ. You know, a trust in what Jesus did on the cross, not for my good works. You see, the whole Catholic system was based upon, okay, I have a little bit of faith, I get the sacraments, but now I've got to do something. I have to do enough. I've got to do enough penance. I've got to walk up the stairs on my knees, saying in our Father, our each thing. I've got to do all this stuff in order to make sure that I'm not going to spend a million years in purgatory. Right? And then I'll finally get to heaven. See, no, no. Salvation comes by trusting in Christ, not in your own goodness, not in your own efforts. See? So, but this means that you have to not only hear the message, you've got to understand it. You see? You've got to understand the gospel to be able to, to put your trust in it. You can't just say, oh, yeah, I believe what the church. Teaches and then give them a sacrament. Give them the Lord's Supper. You know what I'm saying? And okay, okay yeah, this is, this is how actually you get saved. All right, so I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but it's my nature. Now, uh, John, there's John Frith. Okay. If you got an extra $120, you can buy my book. Drives me nuts. My publisher, they sell it for like $120. It's like, therefore, nobody's read it. $120? bucks? no thank you. I can go out to dinner for that much money. Anyway, um, uh, Frith was an associate. I'll have more to say about Frith. But anyway, they worked together, although Frith more is an uh, assistant to Tyndale. Uh, I think there's some good evidence that Frith may actually have done some translation work along with Tyndale. So uh, he was a brilliant scholar. He graduated from Cambridge, was chosen to be on the faculty at Oxford University, but then got caught with prohibited books. You know, so I have more to say about that. Anyway, um, both of these men had to flee England because of their desire to translate the Bible and promote Lutheran ideas. So they settled in Antwerp. Uh, Tyndale eventually was betrayed in 1535, lured out of the safe environment of Antwerp. Antwerp was kind of a free city. You know, the Dutch were, Dutch, even today the Dutch are kind of that way. You know, they're like, yeah, you know, live and let live, you know. 
So even back then, the city of Antwerp was a refuge for English dissidents. And, in fact, I have a slide here of medieval Antwerp. Um, so, it's a, even today, it's a huge port city. It's now in the, in the nation of Belgium. But uh, big, big seaport. Um, there's a connection with English merchants. Had an office there, and many of them were leaning heavily towards Protestantism. And they were also the ones that were involved in smuggling Tyndale's Bibles back into England and the other literature that they wrote. So there's definitely a connection with the, this group called the English Merchant Adventurers, uh, who um, smuggled a lot of that material back and forth. And it, actually, you know, the biggest export item in England at this point in time was wool. They were huge. They had sheep everywhere in England. And so wool was a major item for clothing manufacture throughout all of Europe. So there was a huge export, import uh, adventure going on with these guys. So uh, many of them were associated with the early reformers. Um, Now, a lot of our information comes from this fellow, John Fox. You may have heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs, right? Unfortunately, that's not the title. It's a title of a huge condensation of Fox's work. Actually, Fox's work, I have a copy of it. It's yay big. Nine volumes, and it's actually called The Acts and Monuments. And it was a rather mammoth undertaking. Fox attempted to show how Satan uh, basically persecuted the true faith from day one. Okay, And, of course, the English Protestants were inheritors of that true faith and were being persecuted. So he wrote primarily during the period of the Marian persecution when Queen Mary was burning Protestants. I think 289 Protestants were burned alive during her reign. So what you have here, this is the front piece. Uh, and I'm, I don't know how well you can see this in the back there, but... You have a comparison of the true versus the false religion. Here you have, uh, this is the Tetragrammaton Yahweh. So here you have the Protestant preacher at the center is a pulpit, and you have the preaching of the Word of God. And the people are listening to the preaching of the Word of God. That's the center of Protestant worship. Now, unless you go to a more modern church where it's now a video screen, Okay. Um, historically, Protestant churches have had at the center of the church a pulpit, which represents the, the ministry of the Word of God at the center of Protestant worship. Over here, of course, is uh, actually sale, selling of indulgences. <laughs> here you have Protestant martyrs being burned alive with trumpets. Here you have bishops and ecclesiastics trumpeting the offer of the Mass. Now, people in our day and age, we don't get it. I understand that, because I didn't used to get it either. That's not very good grammar. I didn't used to understand it. Okay. Why is the Mass such a big issue? But the Mass was everything, because the Mass was at the center of Catholic worship, uh, you know, and when I say Mass, I mean the celebration of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and what it meant and what it was supposed to do. I don't have time to explain that, but, but it was at the center of everything that they did. Here, the angels are blowing their horns at this as being false. Here, these martyrs are getting crowns and olive branches and being resurrected up into heaven. So you can see Fox was very much pro-Protestant, anti-Roman Catholic propaganda, some would say, but uh, it's an incredible historical record. I mean, he went through and searched through all of the persecution records in local churches in order to come up with his stories. So I find them very historically credible, although certainly slanted 
heavily towards the Protestant viewpoint. And uh, William Tyndale, as I said, was lured out of the city, arrested uh, by Catholic authorities, uh, and was taken to Vilvoord Castle in Brussels, um, where he spent about a year, and he was eventually then executed. Now, they were, they were kind here, and this is actually an illustration out of Fox's book. And here, he's actually being strangled. So they actually killed the person before they burned them. The English weren't so nice. Okay, The final words out of his mouth were said to have been, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And what he meant was, let the people have the Bible. You know? And it was really prophetic because a year after his death, the first full Bible authorized by King Henry was put in churches. They used to call it the chained Bible because they had to chain them in the churches so people wouldn't steal them. They wanted them so bad. But that did happen. And so Tyndale's vision for his life was realized. Um, now, <clears throat> we could talk. There's a lot of politics going on, obviously. Um, there's a, actually, I think this movie about this man called A Man for All Seasons. Yeah was best picture of the year. So, depending upon your point of view, you either love this guy or you hate him. I don't like him. Because, <laughs> well, he worked for Henry VIII. He was his chancellor during this time. But he was an absolute terror against the Protestants. He felt that, you know, to be fair to him, he felt that there had to be one religion, and that was the Catholic Church, et cetera, et cetera. And so he went after the Protestants in a powerful way. And um, he also ended up being executed. So because when Henry left the Roman Catholic Church, he required all of his ministers, all of his church leaders to agree to his divorce, from his first wife. You know, this is all about Mary and Anne Boleyn. And uh, Thomas More wouldn't do it. So, you know, he's actually St. Thomas More now to the Roman Catholics because he died as a martyr to his faith. And so he was beheaded for treason, not for heresy, but for treason in 1535. So if you were a treason person, they would either draw and quarter you, which is a pretty nasty way to go, too, or behead you. If you were a nobleman, they usually just chopped your head off, which hopefully worked well. Well, the worst thing can happen is if the guy screws up and misses, and you end up being horribly wounded and not killed outright, you know. Yeah. It was not a nice time. Okay, now... It's probably good I'm almost out of time because I could go on and on. But anyway, um, we're going to talk a little bit about John Frith. Um, this is a picture of the little church in the town he grew up in. That was the baptismal font he was baptized in, in this little church. Um, there's some good evidence that he was influenced by Lollards. Now, I don't know if anybody's mentioned Lollards, but... Lollards were kind of the followers of John Wycliffe. They were the ones who secretly kept portions of the Wycliffe Bible. They were against purgatory. They were against the papacy in Rome. In other words, there was a, a ferment within kind of the underground of English society that was fertile ground for Luther's ideas when he came over. So in the region where Frith was involved, there was a strong movement there. Um, in terms of education, we know he graduated from Cambridge University. We have the records of that. The tradition was he went to King's College and went to Eton. You know, if you ever heard of Eton's where the current monarchy send their kids now. 
You know, it's a very prestigious, basically, high school. They call it college there. Um, I'm not sure he actually was there, but that's, you know, I actually was at Eaton trying to look through their records and stuff, and there's not good evidence that he was there, but we're not really sure where he went to school in that regard. Um, he, as I said before, he was handpicked to be a group of young scholars to start uh, a new university or a new college at Oxford University. And if you know the English system, they have universities and then they have colleges within those universities, and they're almost like dorms. So each of them have tutors and their own faculty, and it's kind of a hard system for us to understand from the American educational standpoint. But in any event, this was a new university, or excuse me, college started by Cardinal Wolsey, this fabulously wealthy guy, and this was to be the most fabulous you know, college in Oxford. And Anyway, it was called Cardinal's College in those days. Now it's Christ Church. So it's still one of the more prestigious Oxford colleges. And he was chosen to be on the faculty there, and he started there. But again, there was an outbreak of Lutheranism, they used to call it. And several of the people involved in this were arrested, thrown into the fish cellar of the university, and they, they were just down there for a couple of months, just thrown down there. And one of them died and they were let out, and uh, they, they knew that they were going to have to recant or die. And that's what basically, you know, they were going to be forced. Recant means to renounce your positions, just basically what Luther was being asked to do at the Diet of Worms. And so rather than face that, Frith left for Antwerp. And that's where... We believe he got involved with what Tyndale was doing in Antwerp, and they both published books, Protestant pamphlets and books from there, and both worked on the translations of the Bible. Um, I talked a little bit about that. He returned to England. Again, these guys were outlaws. They were, you know, secret. So he returned to England uh, back in the 1532, and probably to help organize a underground Protestant movement that was going on. Remember, these are the days when Henry's trying to get his divorce, but they're still technically a Roman Catholic country and so forth. And so he returns to England and he gets arrested. And he's put into the Tower of London where he spends the next year or so as sort of a political prisoner. He was one of the bright young scholars of his day. Um, There's a lot of evidence that they wanted to try to turn him over to the king's position, get him on their team, that sort of a thing. But then uh, he ended up writing a pamphlet on transubstantiation. In other words, he began to attack the Roman position, and he then was put on trial for that because Thomas Moore wrote against him, got a, hold of his, got a hold of his work, wrote a whole book against his position and so forth, and pursued uh, his execution. So he was tried and executed. I don't have a lot of time to talk about his theology. Um, he wrote a book against purgatory. Some of his early works were more gospel-oriented, um, his book, Answer to Moore, was a defense of the Protestant view of the Lord's Supper. And uh, what's interesting, and this was kind of the topic of my own studies, was his ideas of essentials and toleration. So even though he wrote against the concept of transubstantiation in the Catholic Mass, he argued that it should be something that we can agree to disagree on. This was, this was, I mean, you know, there was one, there's this one way of faith, walk ye in it or die. It was kind of the whole ethos of the period. There was no toleration. There was no, oh, I don't like this church. I'm going to go to the Baptist church down in the corner. No, if they found the Baptist, they'd kill him. 
All right? So that was just the way it was. So it was no, and so he was one of the early voices of, let's go to the Bible and find out what the essential articles of faith are. You know, and he was arguing that a belief in the real presence in the supper is not an essential. And so we shouldn't be killing one another or excommunicating one another over these sorts of ideas. He wasn't advocating denying the Trinity was okay. You know. So that's what I found very interesting about it and what a lot of my studies were uh, revolved around. Um, unfortunately, he was burned at the stake. July 4th, very easy date to remember, 1533. So every 4th of July, I raise a toast to John Frith. My youngest son is Joshua Frith Hard. <laughs> you know, as a historian, when you study people, I mean, I've studied a lot of Luther. Luther had huge warts. I mean, not literally. I'm, you know, character-wise. You know, he said some nasty things about the Jews that Hitler used. He said some nasty things about the peasants that the that they used to slaughter them, you know. So Luther, you know, as much as we admire him, Luther has some things that make you cringe. Calvin, same way, you know, some things about him that, you know. Um, I, I found nothing on him that made me cringe, you know. And uh, as an interesting little historical note, this fella here, his name's Andrew Hewitt. And he was a disciple of Frith's. And we have the records of his trial for heresy. And he was a tailor. He wasn't a theologian. He wasn't an educated man. But they explained to him in this trial, you realize you're on trial and that you know your mentor, John Frith, has been condemned and he's going to die. And he said, I know that. And he said... You know, and do you still hold to this viewpoint on the Lord's Supper? And he says, yes, I believe like John Frith did, even though he knew he was going to go. So they, they ended up executing them together and uh, on the 4th of July. And what was particularly brutal about these kinds of executions was the worst-case scenario is wind. Because, as, you, as most of you probably know, the most dangerous thing in a fire is smoke inhalation and suffocation. So it would be merciful if that would happen before you actually roast from below. You know, because that's excruciatingly painful and horrible way to die. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen in this execution. Uh, the wind came up, and so Frith suffered horribly, but helped, kept his faith. Never, never denied it, never went back on it, and so forth. So that's all we've got time for today. Um, I should have left some time for questions, but um, any questions? The, the next service starts at 10.30, right? So we can sneak some time. Although Pastor Bo is here, I'll be looking at me like, any, any questions, anybody? Any questions? Jim? Yes. Yeah, because that's uh, a part of the big Puritan movement. So that will be the focus of, yeah, that's when the Puritans came into power. For about, was it, four or five years? A very short time, Puritans actually took over England uh, as a result of the Civil War. So, yeah. Um, a lot of your discussion was that the higher-ups, the king, wanted to become Catholic. What about, right. what is about the average layperson who was raised None. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, during Elizabeth's reign, uh, you know, now they didn't go after the average everyday person. Most of the average everyday persons went to church. And during Elizabeth, one of the things about Elizabeth's reign was that 
church looked the same, even though the doctrine was different. And this is what got the Puritans so upset, because the, they called them priests, they wore all this garb, and they all, you know, church looked a lot like it always did. You know, there were some changes, uh, and the Puritans wanted to get rid of all that. They wanted to completely reform the church. It was an expression they had, the church is but halfly reformed. And that's what gave impetus to what we call the Puritan movement. So uh, at that pop, and this is what the, the historians are debating today on the English Reformation. How much was shoved down on them from above that they really didn't want? Or how much of this was grassroots, listening to the message of the Reformers, hearing the Bible for the first time? And, and, and I think it's probably both. To both and rather than either or, most likely. There is some good evidence that, especially out in the country parishes, they didn't want change. They were happy with the way it was. But other pl- there's other good evidence that people were dying for these new ideas of faith. Yeah? Yeah, except they called it treason back in those days. Um, well, not until the 1700s, and even not then. I mean, part of the American Revolution, one of the big issues in the American Revolution was a fear that the king was going to impose forced Anglicanism on all of the colonies. And by then, America had become this huge melting pot of all these different groups, you know, the Methodists, the you know, the, uh, the Mennonites, and, you know, I mean, Lutherans, Presbyterians, I mean, everybody came to the United States and settled here because of, you know, it was a new opportunity. You could, you could worship in the way you believed you should. And then the idea of an Anglican bishop being sent to rope everybody into the Church of England was odious to the colonists, a huge thing they were afraid of. Yeah. Well, and I mean, he was, uh, the next slide, I was going to talk about Thomas Cramner, and I'll pick up on him next week, but Cramner was sort of the architect of the English Reformation. He was archbishop under Henry VIII, somehow survived all of that, Uh, was archbishop of Canterbury during the reign of Edward, survived all of that, was archbishop at the beginning of the reign of Mary, did not survive her. Okay, but he uh, actually presided on over Frith's trial for heresy and con- was a part of the ones who condemned him for his viewpoint on the Lord's Supper. And then he ended up being executed for the same position years later. So it's an irony of history. And uh, I wrote a paper one time where I was trying to make this comparison and the, the Cramner scholars didn't really buy it. But anyway, um, I think there's a connection there, personally. That, so, um, yeah. So that was a key... Well, I'm trying to... I haven't really answered your question. That was a key thing, plus the, the, the whole thing about toleration. That was his unique gift, I think. Other than that, you know, his, his disputation against purgatory and his stuff against transubstantiation... That was pretty boilerplate. That was pretty much standard. You know, his presentation of the gospel and justification was pretty similar to others, Tyndale and and Luther and what those were saying. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, there's... I'm still trying to find the source of that comment. And in Latin, it has a good ring to it. I'm trying to remember, but it's... In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, uh, no. Uh, well, in all things, charity. I think it was the last one. What was the second one? In, in non-essentials, diversity. I think. 
in all things charity. Right. Different time. You know, Calvin didn't even write the Institutes till 36. These guys are in Antwerp between 30 and 34, 35. So um, they're, they're on that first generation. Calvin is really the second generation of the Reformation. You know, he didn't really become active till 36. And he preached all the way up to 59, 60. You know, Luther had been dead for 20, 20 some years by then. So that's really kind of the second generation. So these guys, these guys were that first generation of reformers who were directly influenced by Luther and involved in translating the Bible. You know, they weren't that involved in all the politics that later played. Yeah. Steve? So the, the list of things that I would die for is pretty narrow, I think. Yeah. So do you get a sense that some of these guys died for things they really didn't need? I mean, they could have things that... That's the, the irony of Frith. He, you know, he said that this wasn't an essential belief, and yet he ended up dying for it. Um, but I think in order to understand, you have to understand how central the mass was. He wasn't saying that the mass was non-essential. He was, what he was saying was the idea of the real presence in the supper was non-essential. Now, that, it's hard to explain uh, it's because that's pretty complicated, what I just said. But basically, I'll try to simplify it. It's um, Luther held to a viewpoint that was called the real presence. Sometimes it's called consubstantiation. Um, but Luther and Zwingli got in a big fight over this, you know, and, uh, you know, there's an old saying at this conference where they had, you know, Luther wrote on the table, das ist mein Lieb, you know, and that in German means, this is my body, you know, and Luther said, yeah, that's what it literally says, that's, that's what I believe, but he didn't buy into the whole dogma of transubstantiation, and he didn't buy into the idea of, you know, the mass as a sacrifice that's given for you to forgive your sins, you know. So, you know, he attacked the whole system, but he still held to that idea that Jesus is truly physically present when you're partaking of communion. That's what Frith was saying was a non-essential idea, that we can tolerate somebody who has that viewpoint, but not this whole system of the Mass and how you're saved by getting the sacrament, not by faith. And that's See, he was... He was also attacking that idea. And, and when you did that, you attacked the very core of the Catholic Church. And that's why the reaction was so violent and so deadly. So, okay. Any other questions? Well, thank you for inviting me here. <laughs>